0: Good evening and welcome to the Recollective Podcast. My name is Charlie Beal and in the studio this evening I'm joined by my ever such a good friend, Mr Tom Goodfellow. Good evening everybody. Happy to be here once again. So paint the picture. Where are we? What time of year? Which part of the country?
1: Well, I think as our listeners know, I'm in Sheffield in a basement. Uh, Same as ever. Uh, Exciting times as, you know... We may not be quite as locked down as we have been quite soon, but still considerably more locked down than we than we have been at other times, so it's not that exciting. but I'm here still, and you know, I reckon we've been doing this for what about nine ten months now,
0: yeah, it's getting to late February, so now, if I listen back to past podcasts, it's getting to the point where you're about to unleash yourselves on the surrounding hills of Sheffield, listening to. Uh, the war on drugs. As the evenings start getting lighter and you start Very running and pounding the streets,
1: I'm uh, anticipating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when did the clocks change? We should do a special celebratory episode, clock change music. When you've got that early bit of evening for <laughs> to enjoy. Um, where are you, Charlie? I'm in my <clears throat> humble abode in Surrey, and yes,
0: late February. Looking forward to the spring. Uh, Looking forward to New Beginnings, and that's a nice segue into the theme for this evening's episode. New Beginnings, well, it all starts somewhere, and we are going to start with the debut singles of some famous acts.
1: Yes, I'm quite excited about this, because there's something about a debut single, right? I mean, sometimes they are peaks of greatness that are never uh, scaled again by those artists, and and they just kind of go downhill from there. Other times, they're just a taste of what's to come, and kick off these incredible careers that just grow and become much richer over time and other times they do something else but they're always interesting um and we've picked eight of our favorites to play tonight
0: i wonder if it's confirmation bias because obviously if if someone's gone on to do very well then it's probably likely that their first single was good there's that there's that old um uh saying that you've got you know five or five years to write your debut album and then five months to write your second one it's always it's always likely that you've got some good ones stored up by the time that you 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 make your
1: mark on the world yeah that's true and i, I mean that's true but at the same time there's often a tendency as we have discovered ourselves um Sometimes record company executives and managers and the like have ideas about the order of things and think that certain songs should be held back or that you shouldn't release a certain song first. Stuff like that goes on. And then there are just bands who happen to get a record deal and start releasing music before they're that good. Now, without mentioning, um, without being mean, perhaps, to a certain Sheffield-based band that we've spoken about recently, Pulp probably didn't release their best music as their debut single um and also bands like you too I, I looked them up and the debut single i don't think it was a song i'd even heard of so there's a mix in there and of course a lot of bands go on for quite a long time uh, and don't release any singles sometimes they release albums but no singles um, for a while and if you, the more you go back in time i find it's sometimes hard to actually pinpoint with certain kinds of artists what their first single was because it didn't really work like that then
0: Yes, there are a couple on my list where it was released as a single and then it didn't make the album because it didn't do well as a single, but then it became a fan favorite and then it was released on subsequent versions of the album. So, all those and and then that changes according to territory, you know. So it was a single in this country, but it wasn't a single there. So um, lots of variations. But for my first choice, I'm going to take us back to 1955, Whoa. and not only is this The artist's first single, but it's an eponymous first single. Referenced in our Guitar Heroes episode. This is Bo Diddley, and the song Ah. is Bo Diddley.
2: Should I Under my house with black dead
0: So I must confess, it was our um, episode on Guitar Heroes and Johnny Marr's use of the Bo Diddley beat in How Soon Is Now that inspired me to look a little bit further into his work. And as you start doing that, you realize just how influential Bo Diddley is.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think I'd realize actually, like you, till that episode that he invented that whole, well, that, what we just heard. (laughs) And was
0: instrumental in taking blues through to rock and roll? that journey from blues to rock and roll and, and the, the, well, I mean, let's talk about, first of all, the bow Diddley beat. It's that syncopated musical rhythm that's widely used in rock and pop. And you'll recognize it in songs like Tom Petty's American girl, which we played how soon is now by the Smiths um, moving on up by primal scream. Um, you, even Ezra Furman, who you often cite in this podcast uh, at the bottom of the ocean is a song that uses that um, bow Diddley beat. You've got yeah. The Rolling Stones who take it on Please Go Home, which is on the The Flowers album. Um, Bowie tries it on Panic in Detroit, which is on Aladdin Sane. Um, it just it's just you could argue that the eight by seeing Scarlet, not necessarily on the guitars, but on the drum, the dum 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 is is slightly a
1: variation on that theme. Not to forget, of course, Craig McLachlan's cover of Mona. Mona. <laughs> yeah, which was uh, my probably my first exposure to the, the Bo Diddley Beat.
0: Um, <laughs> I suppose mine might have been Mr. Brownstone by Guns N' Roses.
1: Oh, I does that, that? how one. does that go again? Yeah, I do. But I, I can't mean, I quite remember tear, how it
0: goes. I might tear it up for the good listeners. Um... Yeah,
1: I mean, for those of you, you know, not old <laughs> enough to remember Guns N' Roses in their in their prime. Um, no, what a fantastic debut, my god. And just think 1955, like. <laughs> uh.
0: So, those of you who are curious can go and look up Mr. Brownstone yeah. by Guns N' Roses. It's but, clearly, um...
1: already not as good as Bo Diddley, but it's great in its way. Um, So what, I mean, do you know, I know sometimes I ask you questions that you don't know the answer to and you can't be expected to, but I just get interested and just wonder if you do. Like, do you know where that came from in Bo Diddley? Like, what influenced him to come up with that particular rhythm and be, well, there's some mix of influences going on there.
0: The man is from Mississippi, born in 1928, died in 2008. So, um... 28 is when he's born, 55 is when he records um, that debut single. At around 1950, 51, he's he's moved to Chicago and he's playing in beat combos in uh, Chicago. And that one is his kind of like core band. Because if you listen to that, it's the guitar, it's drums, it's maracas and there might be a bit of piano in there but it's very basically a rhythm section and um they say that he's taking like the influences from afro-cuban music and playing on the clave rhythm which is which is seen in kind of gospel blues and um there's there's this dance apparently um called the ham bone um which has a signature beat a simple kind of like five accent bone rhythm is what they describe it as, and he takes this and puts it into this song, and then it becomes a cornerstone of like hip hop rock and pop music uh but it comes from it comes from kind of uh, an african dance that's um that's called the bone or I think in other places is called the Juba dance
3: um, mm. Interesting. So
0: it's,
1: it's taking... Possibly a South Sudan.
0: Interesting. <laughs> Potentially.
1: <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's also that era where artists came up with idea and then you just do it again and again and again and again on all your songs. Um, and if it's a good idea, why not? Chuck Berry did it. And of course, you will remember, as I fondly do, listening to the Meat Puppets album front... I am not the Meat Puppets, sorry, the Ink well they called the ink spots. ink spots. <laughs> <in-ladı> front to back. And every song we're getting ding-, blind- rolling- ding, 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 ding,
3: ding, 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 finger- ding, ding,
1: ding, ding, ding-, ding-, trailer- King- ding-, ding, bong. Ding- but I think Bo Diddley's idea was better, so he <laughs> could get away with it.
0: <laughs> um <laughs> who were the meat puppets?
1: <coughs> oh, they I don't know, but they, you know, they um Nirvana covered a couple of their songs on on the Unplugged song. So I came to them through that, but I don't know anything about them.
3: Let's leave the Meat
0: yeah. Puppets aside. The Ink um, Spots were played famously in the 90s in kind of famous London boutiques as a as a nice, easy listening type of retro throwback. And they've got a nicer, more palatable name than the Meat Puppets. I'm not sure if Meat Puppets...
1: <laughs> I'm not quite sure how I managed to get them confused. <laughs> it's a bit like when I got... Um, uh, never mind. Yeah, Space Hog and um, Bush Pig and confused. Pig. Bush Pig <laughs> being a, a youth hostel uh, that I once stayed in in Uganda. Anyway... Um, Great start.
0: So Um, we're going to jump around in this episode because we've got debut singles from a variety of eras and styles. So there's no narrative arc that will link this choice to your next one, Tom. But
1: why don't you launch in? My first choice is the song, which um, was actually the one that I was listening to in preparation. I was listening to this band in preparation for another episode. Uh, As you'll notice, listeners, we often uh, spin off earlier episodes, get ideas, and then come back to them. And um, this song came on and I was like, I want to play that song, but there's a clear place and time to play it. And that's when we're talking about debut singles, because there's something about this song as like a bold statement of like, something just very different and unique and very unsingle-like in many ways, not a Mm -hmm. conventional song with a chorus and a verse, First few times I heard it, you know, we were told to listen to this band, we've talked about this before, uh, by record company exec. No, we weren't, but um, we were compared to this band by record company people uh, when we were in the cling with the saxophone and so on. Uh, this is one of the bands we were compared to, Roxy Music. And I didn't really know much about the band until people started comparing them to us, or us to them. And This was one of the first songs I heard being their debut, and I didn't really... Get it. But it's just over the years, it's really grown on me. And when I go back to Roxy Music, I normally go back to this song first.
2: Big time. Take me on a roller coaster. Take me for an airplane ride. Take me for a six day one love. But don't you, don't you pull my pie aside, side to side. What you feeling, baby, baby, baby. Baby James and I could work a wheel outside and i Yeah, you're so chic, tell yeah, you where we love the wind. Babies of the mountains street midnight you can see the applause. Dance the cha cha fruits at sunrise, opens up exclusive thoughts around. Just like the mingos, but the same. So me and you, just me too, got to search for something new.
1: Now, very unusual middle eight coming up. you have to listen to that song through the end (laughs) it's so good it's Um, so good isn't it Uh, it yeah it gets better each time you hear it that's the thing and
3: it's oboe
1: and saxophone isn't it so
0: where we 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 missed out is we never got enough oboe in
1: we didn't get enough oboe like i don't think i realized kind of just how bonkers innovative it was i was just like what you know why what why (laughs) you know because it's like that comes out in 1972 you know it's not Starman. It's not like a massive, big, catchy hook pop song, but just the sound and the uh, the, the nuts nature of his voice and what are they doing in that song and what's the name, Virginia Plain? I mean,
0: <laughs> and then it, that's Brian Eno coming in on the synth,
1: yeah, the and movie, really, you know, doing it, yeah, so. Eno and his earliest guys, I guess that we mostly know him, um, before all the other stuff he went on to do with Bowie and with U2 and with inventing ambient music and all of that. Um I don't know what it's about. It's just but it's got these kind of wonderful throwaway lines all through it, you know. Just I like the
0: fags,
1: A bit like um, right. Richard Nero
0: Twistinaltos.
1: <laughs> but I don't know if it's about fags, but apparently Virginia Plane is named after what was a brand like a of tobacco. rolling to tobacco, or yeah. a painting by one of the band members who'd done a painting of a uh, this pack like of like rolling still tobacco live featuring tobacco, yeah, thing. and then like <laughs> a naked woman coming out of it or something, as in typical Roxy music. That was star. a motif
0: that uh, Roxy music would employ quite
1: regularly, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, but uh, I think it's also just quite an evocative. It's a great title for a first single because you are like, is that a person? Is it? Is it? Is it a name of someone? Is it a plane in Virginia? Uh, or is it a cigarette? I mean, it, it has many different possible meanings and it's quite evocative. And just the confidence to put that as your first single with no chorus, no sensible structure, oboes all over it, a sort of stream of consciousness lyrics talking about someone called Robert E. Lee and singing about flamingos. And yeah, I mean, so I, I think that's a that's a good debut single. It's tremendous. Would it be
0: allowed now? Who knows? Or maybe it's so good like it would, would be transcendent, whichever era it was released in.
1: Maybe. yeah. Um, I'm not sure that Roxy Music's general aesthetic uh, style and sleeve artwork would go down so well today, And let's not forget that Brian Eno's I mean not Brian Eno, Brian Ferry's kind of politics have surfaced in some interesting ways in recent times i
0: don't know what his politics are i know he's got a son who really likes fox hunting i'm just blaming um, his son i
1: think but i think yeah. he's um of, of probably of the same the same ilk um i don't know maybe that's not fair but you know inspired and yeah i imagine like nothing else that was happening in 1972 or since really very good choice
0: um yeah this is I mean, there's so many musicians who you have to kind of divorce from their politics and their ethos.
1: Phil uh, Collins, for example.
0: Yes. What,
1: what's Phil Collins done wrong? No, I, he's just a real Tory. But um, oh. I'm not, I'm, I, I think. I mean, I heard that long ago. I don't know. Maybe he's not anymore or, or maybe he never was. But I partly also raised Phil Collins because you might have seen there is, uh, I did come across one list as I was doing this. I didn't use the list much, I should uh confirm but there is a list out there of great debut singles at which phil collins is number one
0: <laughs> for calling in the air tonight calling in the air tonight yeah yeah of course he you know that doesn't feel like a real debut single because he had a massive he was already a star at that point
1: true although i should also confess that one of my choices is 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 a well two of them actually were already recording artists in a different form before um so yeah, it's a grey area. No, that's what fine,
0: because I'm going to do a cheat now as well with my next choice. And Record. it's a cheat because it's a debut single, but it's a cover.
1: <sighs> that's fine.
0: I think that's allowed? I think so. Okay, so the original artist is Dale Hawkins.
1: Um, and Dale Hawkins... What did you say? Nothing, I'm just guessing in, in my head, but I'll leave that
0: in my head. Well, Dale Hawkins uh, recorded the song in 1957. He was a pioneer American rock singer and rhythm guitarist who was kind of associated with this swamp rock boogie sound. And he recorded this song. which got a lovely kind of circular uh, chord pattern. But it was taken on to a new level by the band Credence Clearwater Revival. Who I really love um, and may feature in forthcoming episodes around (laughs) America. (laughs) Indeed, (laughs) I think they may. Um, But this is called Susie Q. It's quite long, so I'll leave it to go for a couple of verses and choruses and then we'll start talking. This guitar solo finishes. The nice thing is, the the vocal pans to the other side now and has this really weird kind of vocal effect put on it.
1: It's almost Casablancas. <laughs>
2: Oh, just, yeah. So the
0: reason I play this, this is 1968. Okay. So it's a, it's a full 11 years on from when it was first recorded by Dale Hawkins. Um... And I can play the Dale Haw- Hawkins version, but let's just chat on this Credence version for a bit while, um, while it plays in the background. So Credence, um, they're, a, I think, a San Francisco Bay Area kind of band. but Careful you sound. don't say anything wrong here, <laughs> in case our American <laughs>
1: listeners dispute your <laughs> facts.
0: Well, they're very aggressive, some of our key...
1: American listeners, <laughs> so we're going to welcome them on to have it out with them.
0: Yes. Um, anyway, the sound of it is a very much southern rock style, kind of referencing the bayous and catfish and the Mississippi River and um, you know the southern US iconography. Um, I love Credence. The, the, the singer John Fogerty um, is just like this kind of banshee-like bayou singer um, who. I got into because um, well actually through my mum we went driving through France and she had a credence tape and she played I think we had, she had credence on the one side and the Eagles on the other and I really much preferred the credence side of that tape and this is one of the ones that just it's a good driving song
1: it's a great driving song actually I never discovered credence I don't think I've ever really heard the song and beyond you know a few of the obvious big hits. Um, yeah and I think it is you know this stuff is made for American distances isn't it <laughs>
0: <laughs> big like, open skies big open highways yeah. long uh, it's songs got, it's got a very satisfying chord structure the way it just comes round. I, I might have ch- chosen it for the the killer chord changes it?
1: yeah it's, it's it's got it all really and amazing guitar solos and Nice. It,
0: it effectively becomes a jam at this point, um, but you can see that they've, they've experimented with weird backing vocals, with kind of the first verse panned to the one side, the second verse then pans to the other, a little kind of um, precisely picked guitar line. Um, it's, it's a song that for me is a recollection. Um, and so when I saw it was a debut single.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And it does seem, it's almost like production-wise, it almost seems a bit ahead of its time, doesn't it? Like like you say, they're doing... I mean, first, it's just very beautifully produced, but also the sort of things that they're doing are, just, I don't know, quite quite different, I think, from what was going on at the time.
0: Do you have an opinion on really aggressive panning? Because that was Gur mm. in the 60s and 70s and all the
1: kind of classic stuff. Well, stereo, and... yeah, had just happened and it was like... Amazing, I, I'm a you know I'm a fan of panning, <laughs> uh, but I I, you know, I can sort of see why some people aren't. Things things that are really aggressively panned don't always sound good when you're not wearing headphones. And actually, sometimes when you're wearing headphones, it's too much. I have heard things where I've just thought this this is getting technical now, but you know where this is just too pan too far to decide. side. Um, but in general, I think maximise the use of your stereo where you can. We've only got two ears.
0: So would you tend to then, like, instead of putting them right to the one side and the other, put them kind of sort of halfway between? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. When it's 100 percent. I mean, obviously, those Beatles records, you get stuff really seriously panned in it and it does work. But it's not really designed to be listened to on headphones. I think when, um, yeah, I would normally pan more at a kind of two (laughs) (laughs) o'clock.
0: Depending on, you know.
1: Ten to Uh,
0: two. Ten to two. Okay, yes. so that that uh, the Credence Clear Water Revival only active between sixty eight and seventy two. They've got some really great songs. Um, uh, just go and check them out. Or you can wait for our Americana
1: episode.
0: Where they're bound to appear. Trailing, inviting... trailing.
3: It's gonna be it's real, gonna be a... a
0: real American.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be a hot one, I tell you. There's gonna be heated debate there between us with our deep authority on uh, the sounds of the American road and somebody who actually grew up in California. Um, Anyway, let's go back to... No, we're not going back, are we? We're staying stateside. No, no,
0: we're not. I believe. Oh, no, shit. Yes, you're right. Sorry, I've got We order.
1: We are. Now, this is another one that's kind of a cheat because I, to me, this is this band's debut single and it, it is their debut single. So that's a pointless thing for me to say. But the thing is, it's not from their debut album. Uh, So they obviously had an album in which they didn't release uh, any singles. And also, of course, this band was composed of at least one person who was in another really great band. Um, And I thought that actually as a debut single, the Breeders' debut is more of a smack you around the head, this is a great debut single, than the Pixies' debut single, although that's also really good but confusingly, not really a single, uh, sort of an EP thing, I think. But this was a single and it was a big single. And this is a time in the early 90s when you know two of my songs are actually from this period, um, early mid 90s, unsurprisingly, because it really takes me back to being in indie clubs, uh, you know, on 1993. Something like this comes on and you just, you know, get down and enjoy it. And um, just it's just a genius song in its simplicity and its sonic qualities. Um,
0: I can't believe it's taken us this long to actually play it I was going to say the same thing yeah Another one with a great ending,
1: yeah, short and snappy, and these things are like interesting because again it sort of subverts what's normal for a single. It doesn't really have a kind of chorusy chorus um it's so dead simple, there's not really anything other than the two bits, and yet it just works so well as a single
0: iconic um, opening
1: yeah, absolutely I mean, I mean that- must be
0: up there in the top ten of songs that you instantly recognize
1: yeah and it was i think they used it and was it the word or one of those tv programs as well they just used that opening it was like they must have made loads of money from it (laughs) but um it was just yeah it's the the indie anthems that you got in that period it was up there with the best of them and i just i just can't believe they make them like that anymore and i I mean also i guess pixies just split up so it was like you know one great band kind of ends and then to immediately do something so good <laughs> you know, it's quite unusual and impressive um
0: so i always remember hmm. off the back of those and the pixie up the, the 4ad logo on on that record label and just oh what a great I know. label and what a scene that must have been it's it's a bit like um sub pop or any of those other yeah. sort of think. So, so belly
1: belly was on idea as well i guess and tanya donnelly was originally in the breeders i think tanya donnelly and kim deal started it as a side project when tanya donnelly was doing throwing muses um yeah and and then um you know uh, kim deal was obviously in 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 the breeders uh yeah so i think they were definitely onto some kind of magic for a period of time and of course it has been their biggest hit in They've not had anything like it before or since, but certainly before their first album, because I I haven't followed their career that closely, but their first album, Pod, is great, Um, although apparently had no singles on it. And then um, they've made a bunch of other albums, and we should get Mike, our sometimes contributor, Mike, has has followed them quite closely, I think, and is always telling me how great their latest albums are, so going to check them out.
0: The other one that also reminds me, I'm not sure if they even connected, is uh, Veruca
1: Salt. Oh yeah. Yeah, that I never really kind of- got into them or knew much about them. Um were they also 4AD? I don't know if they were
0: part of the same record label but they had that same sound as Throwing Muses. Um But yeah, I I love that song. I would I would welcome an episode with Mike telling us more about what happened to the Breed.
1: Yeah, and just generally like focus on Kim Deal like as a person who's been in these two iconic Bands. And um, what an amazing career. I, when we went to see the Pixies, uh, well, you got us tickets and we went a couple of years ago. It was really but quite was noticeable
0: by her absence. Yeah, and I think we discussed there. this in the Quiet Loud episode because it's not really about how difficult or how brilliant she was as a bass player, but it was also about the backing vocals and the vibe.
1: Yeah, the style and the combination mm-hmm. of that voice and, and that kind of bass playing. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, there we have it. The Breeders, Cannonball. I don't know, uh, apparently in the chorus there, what are they saying? I just <laughs> They are saying, it, it won't win awards to the lyrics. Hey now, hey now, I want you cuckoo, cannonball. And then over the top, in the shade, in the shade. <laughs> <laughs> maybe <laughs> she has um,
0: got skin problems and she doesn't need to be out in the exposed sun. So she wants them, but only in the shade.
1: Maybe that's it. Um, maybe that's it.
0: or have a picnic under a tree and then we'll yeah. have you.
1: Exactly. Cuckoo, um, who presumably is the name of her, the person she's courting. Um,
0: yes, which is probably short for Cooper?
1: Cooper. Maybe Agent Cooper from Twin Peaks, which was big around that time. Potentially. Okay. We, we, we speculate occasionally on this podcast. We need to revisit I hope, this. I, hope, I hope you don't mind.
0: Um, uh, so I'm going to... Take a slight detour now because I had prepared this episode on the basis that you would choose this song. Mm. And then let's open the kimono for the listeners. I tend to play the songs, so that means I need to know all of the ones that have been chosen. I tend to keep my choices secret from you, so you get a little, little bit of a surprise, but you unfortunately have to tell me yours, so I don't get any surprises. But I know that you didn't choose this song, and I swear you would. So I'm going to eliminate some other things that I would have chosen, like Break On Through To The Other Side by The Doors, mm-hmm. which was probably my backup choice. Um, I also thought you might go to West End Girls by The Pet Shop Boys, but maybe you thought we've had a bit too much twice. Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I thought you might go Alive by Pearl Jam. Obviously... A massive fan it's a great song why not go there but you didn't um and another one i thought you might go for for personal memory's sake and because it's brilliant is take on me by aha
1: <laughs> but you didn't it's, no why didn't i good question it most of those were definitely i mean you've, you've been thinking a lot about what i would have chosen and you are right uh in most of those things are you going to play take on me
0: No, I'm going to choose none of those. Those are the ones we are going to discard on the scrap heap Mm. of debut singles. Mm. Um, I'm going to play a song that you referenced in Guitar Heroes, and it's called Sultans of Swing. (laughs) Yeah,
2: that was...
4: Competition in another place and about the homes they blow and
0: Mark Knopfler talking about a, a fictitious band. I think it was based on a, a performance he saw um, of, of a jazz band in Deptford, and just kind of like the the, the, the weird juxtaposition between the name, as kind of grandiose as the Sultans of Swing, and the fact that they were just effectively just
1: bunch of guys from you know, Deptford,
0: just playing in a little jazz band in a, in well, a South London pub. That was us
1: once, without the jazz, without the jazz element. We've played to empty pubs in Denver. Um
0: But we can't. We can't not go back to this song when it
1: it's goes to guitar fellow, of course. I mean, it's one of the most incredible solos. I mean, um, I, I did listen to this entirety the other day, obviously in preparation, and it was very close to being on my list. So well done. Much closer even than Pearl Jam or uh, Pet Shop Boys or the others.
0: We need to talk about the open tuning and how how I first fell in love with this on the Stratocaster. But let's bring it back up. That's almost like a palate cleanser, or just like it's warming you up for what's about to come. <laughs> real solo. Like
1: oh no, still not yet. Yeah. I I have seen an alternative story that says the band was actually the pub was in Ipswich.
0: <laughs> oh my god. Fake Where we
1: never happened. Come on, listeners. We want to know the truth. It's amazing it's a first single because, again, you just ha- have, have you come up with this as your first single? Like, it's simple in a way, but it's also, it sounds like a kind of mature, well, they probably were already quite a mature band. I don't know. Here we go.
0: In a way, it's a shame it, it, it does fade there. It's a shame because it, it really builds to that point. And the yeah, solo, it, it and doesn't kind of surge into the
1: next bit, does it? Like some some great solos. But it is effing great. And probably he should have been in the Guitar Heroes episode. And it's so clean as well. Like he doesn't need to rely on a lot of distortion, effects, just like a good guitar, nice, clean, you know, slight slightly overdriven sound. It was Deadford, I think.
0: Okay, thank you. God for that because I'm beginning to doubt the very ground I walk on. Um uh, <laughs> and one account I read which may or may not be true is that it was composed on a national st- well a steel guitar with open tuning and Mark Knopfler thought it was dull until he bought his first stratocaster in 1977 and then it came alive.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Because I do feel like a lot of that song is about specifically about the guitar sound, you know, about the quality of the guitar and the amplification of it. Um it Sounds ridiculously boring and techy, but it's kind of true. If you played that on a shit guitar, you'd be like, you know, whatever.
0: You also <laughs> couldn't do it if you were the guitarist in a band and you weren't also the singer and the writer of the song.
1: Because he basically,
0: yeah. he either sings or he plays. He weaves and- with
1: his own vocal. Yeah, he, Yeah. And it's, it's really, oh, it just takes me back. That 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 album, um, no, not Brothers in Arms, the album, but um, A um, Greatest Hits of Dire Straits, I think, just oh, my friend, my good friend Simon, who I hope we get on this podcast at some point, we used to listen to that late at night, just drinking tea, you know, um, before we even drank very much of anything else. And we would just talk about life and what was going on and listen to Dire Straits, and it was just... It's amazing. <laughs> Before, you know, I really got These into it. Of <laughs> oh my God. Um so it's so amazing. That song. It's, it's yeah. It is amazing. <laughs> um, it, it's the it's a caricature right.
0: though, because dire straits I don't know if there is another band that typifies dad rock in in greater yeah. like way than dire straits,
1: but it's unavoidably good. Sorry, Sorry, guys. And back then when I was drinking tea and listening to it, I was definitely not a dad. So we may be dads now, but it's great. And they weren't even that old then, were they? But just like. They were dad rock before anyone else's dad rock somehow <laughs> before they even deserved to be.
0: Yeah. And Walk of Life came on
1: recently oh. in my house and it's just joyous. Uh, you, you don't know, like it? I don't do Walk of Life. <laughs> that's Walk of it. Life. I don't know. I just, I, yeah, that's that's just going too far for me. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. uh, on the yeah. spectrum, what about I like my MTV with Sting, Money for Nothing.
1: Uh, uh-huh. I'll do Money for Nothing. Yeah, but actually, of course, uh, Salt and Swing is not not on Brothers in Arms, and um, I don't know if anything on Brothers in Arms is even as good, apart from maybe Brothers in Arms. Perhaps, but anyway, I mean, yeah. Uh, why worry? Um, money for nothing. It's a walk of life. No. <laughs>
3: why
0: don't you like it? It's joyous. Come on. Oh yeah, it's joy- it is,
1: it is joyous. It is joyous.
0: It's um, um, but, joyous. But, yeah, but what about the deep line? We only have one world, but we live in different ones. Or we have but one world, and we live in different ones. From Doesn't make sense. Romeo <laughs> and Juliet? I, I thought it on was that? one of the deepest lines I ever heard when I was 13. I'm going to just look up Brothers in Arms.
1: I don't think I know that lyric. We have one world, but we live in different ones. They're just, you know.
0: So many different worlds, so many oh. different sons, and we have just one world, but we live in different ones. I thought that was uh, like mind-blowing about how we can't talk.
1: Yeah. Okay, so he's just playing on the word world in a, in a way Yeah. <laughs> hey, we he, have just
0: you know. one world, but we live in different ones. I mean, you could apply that to climate change. You could apply it to irreconcilable geopolitical conflict. The yeah. man
1: is a genius and he can twiddle. You certainly can twiddle. Um, So from one lyrical genius to another, <laughs> or not, here's another song, if it's me and if it's what I think it is, which um, as soon as I thought of it, I was like, was that the, de- was that the debut? Oh, that was the debut. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to listen to that. Do I really want to play that? I'm just going to listen to that, having not listened to it for years. And this is not one of my favourite bands or anything um, at all, really. But I listened to this. You, you know it's true. You, you've you got my lists, mate. We've done the lists from 19-whatever, 97. I, so. it's, it's beginning to emerge <laughs> that you love this band. I haven't played them at all on our podcast. You've played one, um, I think. But anyway, this song, when I listened back to it, I was like, that is going in my list. And it even overtook Virginia Plain as a, like, essential. Because what a debut single. Um and again it takes me back, I think I've told you about the time I was in the zombie club behind King's Cross Station and this song came on and I was like I'd heard it like once before and I was like, Oh, is that song? What's that song? I was like, This something is happening here, you know. That was when something was born, I think, about for me, about I don't want to use the term Britpop, but about what was going on in music in this country at that time. Love them or hate them. to listen to all of this really <laughs> doesn't have a great ending like some of the others and, yeah, you've, um, got the, you've got the introduction
0: you've got the howling vocals you've got the nice chord
1: yeah I mean it, it's almost like the opposite of the Dire Straits song in a way because like the guitar sound is just like bleh. it's just like a load of dirge there's not really any art to it there's no sort of bounce and like lightness of touch in this song it's leaden it's like dirgy, but that's exactly what's great about it
0: yeah, I don't un- understand. You can't pinpoint a single element of it and say that's why it's great. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: It's almost, yeah, the elements are not lyrically very...
0: sophisticated. The guitar sound uh, isn't uh, amazing. Uh, I do actually quite like the drum sound.
1: Yeah, does the job. But you're right. Nothing individually about it is really any good. <laughs> um, and do you, that, you think
0: know, we're it's, just children of our own upbringing, and uh, it, you know, was exciting at the time to be
1: that age and have an anthem. Yes, partly that. And uh, it's, again, in a different way from Rockstar Music, but similar. It's a kind of confidence of it. It's a first single. Uh, and, wh- you know, when I listened to it the other day, day I wasn't listening to it over Zoom, which makes a big difference to sound. Also, I had my headphones on and I was walking. And, I, you know, there's definitely something about motion and listening sometimes. If you're walking at a certain pace and listening to a song like this and being like... Fucking
0: out <laughs> Were you that, bowling down yeah. and knocking people out the way like Richard yeah, Ascroft and...
1: Totally. I mean, it sounds like pretty shit to, shit to me today, but the other day when I was walking down the street like that, going and I fucking cum. <laughs> it was brilliant. Get
0: out of my way, fucking bin. Yeah. Um it's visceral
1: it really is the opposite of the Dart Straight" song as well when you think about the quality of the guitar solo I mean it's just like a very poor rip off of like the riff from Layla by Eric Clapton Um,
0: one thing I didn't understand when I moved over here is everyone at the time was going oh Oasis they're just ripping off the Beatles oh that's stupid I think it is a bit stupid because like the chord patterns that's Every other indie band were, were ripping off. I, I don't know why I mean, they were particularly labelled as Beatles rip-offs because like, it, everyone played the pop song ripped off the Beatles.
1: It was actually really stupid in retrospect. I mean, that song kind of almost couldn't sound less like the Beatles. Yeah, it's <laughs> um, done nothing, the, like it's nothing like him. It sounded nothing like and nor did Shaker Maker or even Live Forever. And I think the point is that they just banged on about the Beatles the whole time and people hadn't really thought about the Beatles very much for the last few decades. They were just like, oh, that's the past, you know. So it was partly like they brought it on by going on about how amazing the Beatles were. And they had a provincial accent from the North. I mean, I don't know. And and they were
0: haircuts and...
1: Yeah, and they were maybe a bit more, obviously, drawing on the kind of early Beatles pop sensibility in terms of the tunes than someone like the Smiths or whatever the previous decade. But, yeah, I guess... They were just making big pop songs and talking about the Beatles, and that convinced everyone that it was clever in some ways <laughs> because people started to believe that they were somehow like the Beatles.
0: So I'm going to take um, <clears throat> a trip back. So what What year was Supersonic? 91? 2?
1: No, 94, I think.
3: Four? Okay.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to go back 14 years to nineteen eighty. And this is a band we've played before, one of my faves. But this is a very, very early incarnation of the band. And this incarnation of the band featured the chief songwriter, Vince Clark, who would then go on to be songwriter for Yazoo, The Assembly, and then Erasure, who I actually have a very soft spot for, um, partially because I've been compared to uh, Andy Bell in terms of looks um, <laughs> not yeah
1: no, no offense to andy bell recently but don't go there <laughs> well i don't know i, I think he's had, I think well, he's had I some know. i think he's had some work that's the problem it's not the aging it's the work are you saying that he's looking better than me no i'm saying he's looking worse because he's had too much work done on his face always too much makeup he looks weird anyway let's not talk about it. I, i'm a fan you know andy bell you can do what you want to your face
0: so depeche mode this is their debut single and it's called Dreaming of Me and it reminds me in particular of driving um, through France with Mike. And Depeche Mode have got those two greatest hits albums, the first half and the second half. And the first half was really fun. Um, it's got songs like Just Can't Get Enough and um, and this one, Dreaming of Me. So when Mike and I were driving through France, we were, instead of um, dreaming of me, we sung
4: dreaming of beer, (laughs) and um,
0: there's something about that kind of like football hooligan chant about this song, very innocent, very yobby, very young. Uh, They were young Essex boys, and it doesn't have any of the darkness that comes through in later Depeche Mode work when Martin Gore takes over the songwriting duties and Vince Clark oxelf and and does all sorts of other electro synth pop stuff with other people.
1: Yeah, it's I mean it's it's I listened to an interview with the the other day actually and they he had still got this like Essex accent and they just they actually both just sound like such normal blokes. It's quite it's quite nice. And um like Vince Clark can you I don't have the timeline clear in my head between this and Yazoo and Erasure. Was it that was that the order? He was in there that he went to form as Yazoo after this, or no?
0: So there were a couple of bands that preceded Depeche Mode, uh, in which Vince Clark was like a central member, and so he he is in a band called No Romance in China with Andy Fletcher, and then in 1980 he forms a band called French Look. No um
1: busy.
0: Which I think has got then Martin Gore in it, and then that becomes Depeche Mode, and and like he's only in Depeche Mode for about a year for the, the album Speak and Spell, and then he buggers off, and then Depeche Mode go on and become a, a huge international band. So that 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 album Speak and Spell is is all Vince Clark songs, and then he goes off and does I think Yazoo. And then The Assembly and then Erasure. And Erasure oh, wow. There
1: no, were so many. Yeah. Uh, amazing. What a legend. Like, clearly. Yeah. And and it picks up a bit on, he, he talked about being influenced by the Human League. I guess this was just after some of that stuff we listened to in the Sheffield episode. Um, oh, oh, no, this year's, what, this might have been around the same time. What year is this from?
0: This is 80. Okay. Uh, so around exactly around the same time as what, what was happening in Sheffield. Um, more palatable than um, Cabaret, Cabaret Voltaire, Voltaire. <laughs>
1: but couldn't... about the
0: same as the Human League and
1: yeah, Heaven Seventeen. Just such such a distinctive. He, he does have a very distinctive style, there, doesn't he? Like, I mean that that sounds like the Yazoo and the early Erasure, whatever he's doing there. And like you say, that early Depeche Mode album, it sounds more almost like them than like Depeche Mode. Um,
0: yeah, and if you think about, I don't know if you know the song "New Life." But certainly you will know the Just uh, Can't, yeah, yeah, enough, yeah. Just yeah, can't yeah. I, enough. I know you like, uh, yeah. Those were all written with Vince Clark as the singer, but then Dave Gahan jo- joins the band and starts, um, you know, being so singer.
1: So why did he leave and why did Martin Gore not get involved in the songwriting then? Was it kind of a bit of a power struggle or musical uh, differences?
0: I don't know, but I think the way it's reported is, I think Vince Clark's quite generous about it because he goes on to say that... Um, you know, Depeche would obviously write these darker songs that he, he couldn't have done, but he still thinks they're brilliant. Um, but the way he described it is he thinks that everyone in the band at that time thought it was them that was responsible for their success. Right. Whether that's Dave Kahan or Martin Gore. I think I think he's basically
1: more of a private.
3: He needs an Andy Bell so he
1: can hide behind the Exactly, and yeah. the famous
0: thing about the dynamic between Andy Bell and Vince Clark was that Vince Clark would just stand behind the keyboard Poe faced and Andy Bell would be the front man. Um, yeah. And so ma- maybe it was just like being a band and touring and and all the kind of excesses that accompanied it. That he did. Yeah, he'd already done it.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I actually considered um, the first Erasure single as well. I had a listen. I was like, but who, who needs love like that? But um, it's just not really as good as some of the later stuff. So um what is your but yeah great choice song? well as you know i'm a big fan of respect <laughs> um no, hang on a minute is that what i mean Give um a little
3: respect
1: yeah yeah, yeah 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 so i hear you calling oh you baby don't, you don't mean um that's good not stop stop is good. Song? Stop.
5: also stop. good
3: Sorry.
1: stop is a close second um <laughs> Um, um love to hate you is one I also
0: liked. But oh, anyway, that's awesome. we're getting off track. What's we are your next choice. Do a whole episode on him.
1: One on Vince Clark's career, actually. Uh okay, so shifting gear quite substantially again here. So uh when I remembered that this was a debut single, I was just thinking about different things I could play. I thought, yeah. Because so this is again—it's just a little bit of a cheat in a way because this is someone who was definitely having a lot of success as a recording artist and singer before this song. But I thought it was just quite an interesting one to choose as well because this album came out in I think nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine, and I really loved this album. And it's like it's—I guess it's a hip hop album. And I wasn't—you know—I'm not educated about hip hop really, apart from listening to a lot of Snoop Dogg and some of the stuff around the G Funk era. Um, I hadn't really. You know this was a massive mainstream hit obviously after the fujis so i'm talking here not about the fujis but about lauren hill and i the fujis i could sort of take them or or leave them really and everything they did seemed to be like uh, sampled or a cover or something and um although i'm sure there's plenty of samples on this album the miseducation of lauren hill was a great album uh, and very evidently the only great album by lauren hill um and uh but you know as again as a first single to come off a first album when you've just left a a really successful band um you know she was on a high and then she kind of almost went higher so i think it's really interesting as well because it kind of brings in all this sort of 60s really soulful stuff along with the hip-hop um and it's got that incredible video where she's like draws a line down the screen do you remember the video and it's like 1967 on one half and 1998 on the other half and so there's like you need to watch that video. So there's like a '60s Lauren, and then there's '90s Lauren, and it just says a lot because she's talking about kind of values, and she disses both um, men and women for being kind of too materialistic and commercial, in different ways, and so, but not in a way that's kind of overly patronising. And um, and then she, yeah, kind of juxtaposes the sort of '60s soulful sound with this kind of '90s atonal stuff that also kind of reflects the value she's talking about so it's anyway let's hear it and we can talk more
5: mm-hmm. yo remember yo. back yo. on the bully when cats used to harmonize yeah. like <laughs> yo yo. yo my men and my women don't forget about the day. this is not the most the king yo it's about a thing uh yeah feel yo. good when the and look two shots uh. in the atmosphere uh-huh. In. talking out your necks and you're a christian i must live sleeping with the gin now that was the sin that did jezebel in. who you gonna tell when the repercussion is spent showing off your ass because you're thinking it's a trend girlfriend let me break it down for you again you know i only say it because i'm truly genuine don't be a hard rock when you really are a gem baby girl respect is just the minimum when you still defending us Women in Philly pen It's silly when girls sell their souls because of sin Look at where you be in Head weaves like Europeans Fake nails done by Koreans Come again A win-win come again to the men Or concerned with his rims And his timbs And his women Him and his men Come in the club the like hooligans Don't care who they You fan, Papa Yang Life you got yes. Let's not pretend The one to pack pissed Out by the waist man, Chris by the casement. Still the name of the spaceman, The pretty face man. Claiming that they did a bit, man. Need to take care Of their three or four kids In the facing. And- when the child supports late, money taking home, right. breaking out, you wonder why women hate men. And the sneaky yeah. silent men, the punk the violence yeah. men, the quick to shoot the semen, stop acting like boys and be men. How you gonna win when you ain't right within? How you gonna win when you ain't right within? How you gonna win when you ain't right within? Right within? Uh uh-uh. uh, uh-uh. come again. Yo, yo, come again.
1: I just want to draw attention to that extended pre-chorus because the song has got a great little pre-chorus anyway and then she kind of goes into this a cappella thing and that come again like i don't know, it's it's kind of really unusual to have such a such a good and sophisticated bit between the chorus and the verse
0: it's so evocative of a time for me and i'm almost yeah. kind of listening to it with fresh ears and also, it's interesting to listen to it when you've got the, the benefit of having heard Crazy in Love by Beyonce and how she took a kind of brass sample and to the next level. But there's a lovely little brass brass sample.
1: Yeah, amazing just kind of combination of sound. And it's so, so kind of melodic, but also, you know, with all of this kind of off time, off kilter, off key stuff, um, just melding things in a really interesting way. So she recorded it in Bob Marley's studio in Jamaica as well, interestingly, um, before she got together with his son. Uh, And yeah, I mean, the whole album I just really enjoyed, and it reminds me very much of that year, because I remember that year I I just listened to the album a lot. I have a weird feeling I bought it in Prague while I was interrailing with some school friends of ours and then just listened to it loads. Um, I listened to it a little bit with
0: my now wife, and it reminds me of getting to know her, along with um, some Smashing Pumpkins numbers that I mentioned previously. But I think it's it's also testimony to the fact that in the Fugees, she was the talented one. Because if you yeah, don't, and then look at what White Left Jean <laughs> did afterwards, yeah, I think it was a load of
1: bollocks. And I was going to say, actually, this is it reminded me. So just reading up a little bit on this, and I mean, very briefly. Obviously her relationship with Wyclef, the impression was created in the Fuji's probably by Wyclef that he was the talented one and it was all about him and their success was all about him. Uh, and, um, and she was obviously feeling like, hang on a minute, I've got something to say here and, and feeling suffocated. And then it was acrimonious and she left and did this. And it reminded me of when we were preparing for the country episode. And I was listening to this Dolly Parton podcast, which actually I listened to ages ago anyway, that I've mentioned it. The, um, what's it called? Dolly Parton's America. And, uh, take note american friends we do research and um uh there was a period where dolly parton was on this tv show and she was just you know the pretty blonde girl sitting with i can't, I can't remember his name the famous guy who was a you know it's her, the um, one
0: the one with the funny name because because isn't this the the, the person you know? who she wrote um you know she wrote those two great songs in the same day
3: um, yeah
1: although actually she <laughs> it's interesting cuz she says that and then she 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 says it, and we talked about it on another podcast. But then she says something that makes it clear it's not true. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like the timing is uh, confused, but um, yeah, it's that guy. Um, and it's he like was the- Towers Jefferson, or uh, I'm going Rivers- to look it up. Uh, it was really famous. Um, it was um, oh, oh, I can't find it. Um, anyway, but the point is that it was all about him, and she came in uh, Porter, Wa- Porter Wagner. Oh, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Porter Wagner. And so he was really, really, really famous and she was not supposed to be sort of anything other than a good singer perhaps. And, and a pretty blonde. Uh, but she, she felt really suffocated by that and got really annoyed. And it was, you know, in the end she left for her own career. It, it just reminded me of that. I feel like that's probably what happened in the Fugees, but you know, thank God those people broke away from those overbearing men <laughs> and showed their true talent. The sad thing with Lauren as opposed to Dolly is that she just, just never did anything else really. And um I don't know apparently she just in a way it's what she's singing about in that song right she wasn't cut out for this she didn't want the bling and the and she was uncomfortable with it and she didn't want to keep playing to this I mean she must have been so famous you know it was such a successful album like globally and I guess she just wasn't up for it and she never became up for wow. it again um and it yeah.
0: was a it was a smash hit commercial hit, but everyone respected it as a piece of art yeah. as well. also it really still does.
1: Yeah, which is really that's the holy grail, right? Yeah. Commercial and critical success. So that's my last number.
0: That's our last number. We're oh, moving on
1: to our own song. I think it. Yeah, it's difficult when you've played a load of
0: really
1: great first singles. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, um this is the problem with our, our the concept of our episode and our format is we do <laughs> tend to end off with with, with a <laughs> an unknown song by a band who didn't make it um after looking at the greats well fuck you if you don't want to listen to it turn off now.
1: This <laughs> is, um... <laughs> well, it's, it's also got a great video drawing on the 1960s imagery much like lauren hill um This was part of a double A-side, to be precise, wasn't it, Charlie? It
0: was, and I'm glad we had two A-sides because it gave both of those (laughs) hits room to breathe as hits in their own right.
1: Two wrongs do make a right. No, I mean, there's nothing wrong about them, but um, yeah, it it made sense, actually. It's called Uh, Never
0: Good Enough. I remember you sending me the demo to this and being so excited about recording it. Um, It's ostensibly about... Is it, I mean, like, OK, so here's the question, Tom. Is it about the music industry and us kind of like trying and trying to write songs and them not being good enough?
1: Yeah, basically. Although actually I think it's one of those songs where had it been successful, it would have resonated with many other people in different fields of life. Uh, but it was, yeah, the proximate um, thing behind it was we'd been sort of had some songs that really piqued the interest of the music industry particularly with with the Kling, with our first band and then we were sort of told go away write more demos and we did and they were kind of often deemed not to be good enough the songs weren't quite there we just need another one we need another hit we need another one like that but better that whole thing and then feeling um judged uh by these people who were often sort of our age or you know not necessarily didn't seem like any great authority to sort of come and say no you need to go away and listen to some magazine and write something that's a bit more like that or you know there's a line in it about (laughs) we might have talked about this men in wigs are coming around for tea and it's quite funny because the men in wig I was just thinking about the stupid haircuts that all the A&R men had like they often you know they had to have like a really indie looking haircut and I played this song to my dad, and he's like, "I like that that line about the men in wigs, like judges, you know, in court." And I was like, "That's not even what I meant." Uh, but weirdly, that makes much more sense in the context of this song. Let's played
0: "Never Good Enough." We can talk about the video yeah. afterwards. Yeah. that song got the same um, beat matching and high production quality as ugly girl, but it doesn't seem to have suffered quite as badly.
1: It's interesting. You should say that. I was just thinking the same thing. I think it, it fared better in the townhouse studios treatment than ugly girl, just maybe more suited to it as a song and not as tired. I mean, we'd been playing ugly girl for a long time as well. And we'd done like 14 versions of it and we didn't really know what we wanted from it anymore. And, Andy kind of came and took over uh the producer in in a way and I don't know like we we I we didn't have a so much of a vision for what we wanted to do with it I think we did have a vision for what we wanted to do with this and you know the, it draws very directly on the police obviously we played them a lot in terms of the kind of stabby chord and the real absolutely metronomic tightness it was meant to be like that um you know there are things about the way it's produced in the end where I could have tweaked here and there but actually I think it Stands up quite well. There's a lot of things I still really like about the song. I, I like, you know, the way it goes into that different section at the end and that you get the backing vocals doing the main vocal line at half time underneath. And it's interesting stuff, you know.
0: Yeah, I love it. And the video was actually really good. So those of you who are listening can go and look Seeing Scarlet Never Good Enough up on YouTube. And there's still a version of the video which is shot on Super 8. Uh, in and around Primrose Hill, featuring us. And we were trying to dress in the kind of 60s suit style. It's quite a nice look.
3: Yeah. It's...
0: It features our friend Carl Hill as the protagonist within the video for whom nothing is good enough.
1: Or Indeed. No? Now, uh, who you may know for, for his work as, um, what's it called? Slow Alfie uh, from Club de Fromage. In, yeah, if Carlos you haven't to...
0: Impresario, who we met um, when we were both working at ICM, the talent agency. And we'll get on to that because we. I think we we should do an episode on lovies and the kind of acting scene because we it, should it's one bit of our history that we've probably not no. covered.
1: And it was in our very first list of possible episodes. Actually, we didn't do it, uh, but yeah, we should. But yeah, I mean, like, we made that video, and it was the video far more attention probably devoted to that video than any other video we've made the possible exception of aliens but this one there was more of a concept behind it aesthetically than there was <laughs> the aesthetic concept of aliens is get some people wearing alien masks and low-cut tops um but um yeah i it's it's a, it's a, it was a good thing that we did i think with seeing scarlet that song on that video and we enjoyed it i think and I, i'll never forget playing that song at the tea time shuffle in leeds as i was saying to our guest mark sturdy recently and we played that song a few times and it was new and we were excited about it and we played it with real energy and I think the audience felt it and bought into it
0: yeah there was a period when we absolutely had that so it's weird how how a song you feel like you've you've got it and you're in control of it and you are ready and it's 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 new to you it's new to the audience or maybe not just new it's the audience is familiar with it but
1: you, you believe in the it
0: same thing yeah it's, it's a belief thing isn't it it goes down to the deep psychology
1: of because that was one of those songs so it's like doing like uh, yeah a half hour workout in three minutes you know i imagine it was for you it definitely was for me playing the guitar parts and doing all those backing vocals and trying to you know there's, there's stuff going on everywhere um and you just feel shattered at the end of it but in a really good way and if if you gave it you kind of had to give it your all otherwise there was no point playing it at all and if you got yeah, to the point where you don't where get you... it from
0: this recording, no. but the, no. just reaching those high notes in the singing, ah, um, oh. yeah, I, I remember actually noticing when I was fit <laughs> or not fit because, yeah, like your lung capacity being able
1: to reach those high notes—that's
0: it.
3: Very
1: different. I just remember generally like how exhausted we feel after just like sometimes twenty-five minute set. Anyway, <laughs> that's a nice go there. This kind of nostalgia, but um, that was our debut single.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed seems, that.
1: Seems well, Likewise.
0: And our debut singles episode. Yeah, And we're conscious that we've we've rambled on a bit in previous episodes. So I'm going to draw it to a close this evening. Not going to look at the map. Not going to look at uh, what are the other things we look at. We're not going to make jokes about how old we are. We're not going to look at the map.
1: And we're not Um, going to make fun of uh, the younger generation. See, now we're already talking about these things.
0: Okay. Until next time, (laughs) when we'll do all of that, once again, good night. Good night.